Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. When labs want to dig into genomes, they tend to use instruments called sequencers. These instruments deliver a readout and tell researchers what units, what nucleotides, make up the stretch of DNA they're looking at. And the readout might be for one stretch of DNA or entire genomes or many genomes. One issue has been that existing instruments delivered short reads, short readouts of sequence. Then scientists have to computationally stitch together short reads into contiguous sequence. But genomes have a lot of gnarly bits that make assembly from short reads hard and sometimes even impossible. To address this, a few companies developed instruments that can perform long read sequencing, one of which is Oxford Nanoport Technologies. There are other companies such as Pacific Biosciences. There are newer offerings from other companies such as MGI, Ultima Genomics, and Element Biosciences. Illumina, one of the more well-known sequencer makers, has also started to offer long-read technology. As part of a story for one of the Nature Journal's Nature Methods, I spoke with researchers in academia and with scientists at companies about long-read sequencing. This is an episode in the series about long-read sequencing. Nature Methods called Long-Read Sequencing, the Method of the Year for 2022. This episode is with and about Dr. Gordon Sangira, the CEO of Oxford Nanopore Technologies. I did a PhD in coupling biology to electronics, and I was involved, I came to Oxford to, to work for a prof who had a company in the 80s who transformed the lives of type 1 diabetics. If you know anybody who injects insulin, if you remember those little credit card sized glucose meters with a finger stick, they were invented here in Oxford. So that, that was transformative and disruptive, but I didn't really know any of that back then. Um, you know, I was just in this rule, really, I was doing a job that, you know, I was able to get, which was specialist in my PhD, which is coupling biology to electronics. So that was a 14 year, uh, I didn't realize at the time training for Oxford Nanopore because uh, the company, I joined when there were 20 or 30 people as an R&D bench scientist, worked my way up, uh, became head of R&D. And then I moved to our head offices in Boston, uh, Mass, Mass. And in mid-flight, we got acquired by Abbott Laboratories. So by the time I landed, we were part of a big Abbott Diagnostics division. So I did seven years at Abbott. And, um, uh, you know, which really allowed us to accelerate um, uh, and, and change so many lives of type 1 diabetics. And the most memorable moment from that was I was in Atlanta at a, a, an American Diabetes Association conference. And uh, this beautiful healthcare worker came over and gave me a big hug. And she looked after juvenile diabetics and she said, you have no idea how how transformative this has been because a very small amount of blood, very easy to use and very low cost. So it really could get at those low and middle income um, uh, groups where, you know, there was a fear, there was a lack of education. You know, it was, it was so it was wonderful. But by uh, 14 years, seven years in as Abbott, I, I became very frustrated working for a large company, T too much of a straitjacket. 
And I was in my early 40s, and Abbott offer wonderful final salary pension schemes. So I thought I've got to get out of here before that, you know, stops me leaving forever. And also, you know, like a good band, I wanted to break up the band and start again and see if I could go in a different direction. And that's where Oxenanopore came about. The idea of melding biology and electronics might not sound too offbeat these days, perhaps, but when he was a PhD student, it was quite unusual. It was an obscure field, even back when I did my PhD, which was nuanced to what Nanopore were doing. But when I looked at, in 2004, when I, you know, really wanted to get out of Abbott, um, you know, I was looking at what Oxford were doing and, and I came across Nanopore. And, and, and it is basically a very sophisticated method of coupling biology to electronics. And there are only five academic groups. So that is something really unusual for a company to almost be incepted at the same point as the, the field starts. So you end up with this, like, so we, we were spun out of Oxford, but we immediately did a deal with Harvard, specifically Dan Branton, um, who is in his 90s and still going strong. I mean, he is, he is amazing. He had his 90th birthday during lockdown a couple of years ago, I think. You know, we all had a Zoom call. It was wonderful. But, but Santa Cruz, California, Massachusetts, Harvard, Oxford, we, we, we partnered with all of them. And we went to see them all and said, look, this is such a nascent technology. It requires a huge leap of faith and a lot of money to convert an academic curiosity into something that could be broadly adopted and used. And let me show you my CV because I helped do that with glucose testing. And I think some of the things that we did over there, we can bring over here because the underlying underpinning innovation in, in manufacturing can be developed. And, and that's kind of, you know, leap forward 15 years of hard work, blood, sweat and tears, and we launched our first products. Oxford Nanopore started in 2005 and grew out of ideas from scientists such as David Deemer, who was then at University of California, Davis, Hagen Bailey at University of Oxford, and Dan Branton at Harvard University. Oxford Nanopore introduced its first device, the MinION. There was an early access program. This was in 2014. We put out a call, 200 words. It was like a Twitter thing. In less than 200 words, tell us what you'd like to do. And you pay us a thousand dollar deposit and we'll send you a minine and some flow cells. And we thought we might get 20, 30 applications. I think we got 3,000, 3,000. So we sifted through all these applications. It was a really fun, we, we set aside Friday afternoons and we'd go through these different things. We wanted to really, we wanted to show the breadth, depth and diversity. And this was in 15 when, you know, the, the, it was rudimentary in terms of performance. But we got some amazing applications. And that's the first time you start to think, uh, OK, we might have something quite significant here. I wondered what domains these 3,000 people were active in. These were people keen on trying out a new sequencing technology. As it turns out, these were not exclusively people already heavily involved in sequencing. The first thing was a lot of these people didn't do sequencing. So, you know, the way sequencing is, it's, it, it's IBM mainframe. It's like the computer superpowers, right? You know, the Broad Institute, WashU. I mean, you short all these people. 
um, here, Welcome Trust, Sanger Centre, you know, all that's where the money is, right? It's like a G20 correlation is very strong. You have multi-million dollar capex, multi-million dollar infrastructures and government or non-for-profit funding to, to pull this off. What we found was a very broad church from uh, my favourite being a 16-year-old Guatemalan schoolgirl right through to some pretty powerful profs, but mostly not in sequencing, more interested in I can get some information from this at my desk in real time that I cannot do with any other technology. So primarily, the focus was initially on infectious disease, which is a no-brainer because that's the one where time to result is really, really important. But actually, we always, when we, when I think about that list, the breadth, depth, and diversity in there, it was plant, it was human health, it was infectious disease in humans, infectious disease in plants, environmental. I mean, the, the church was very broad. And when you do offer somebody the capability of interrogating source co codes of, of yourself, the things around you, the environment, the food we eat, it's a very seductive um, uh, value proposition at a price point that is, you know, $1,000 for a starter pack targeted to ensure that uh, an undergraduate, uh, you know, a DPhil student, a PhD student, postgrad doing a PhD could just go off and sign off and do it. And that's really an ethos of this company, you know, create these these real, you know, innovators at a price point that they can really go and rip the rule book up. Um, uh, and and so, so when we do our London conference every year, and Zoe can fill you in on that, it, you know, it started as a little bit of uh, fun. The first one we did was 2015 in London. And I said, well, you know, let's, let's just do something slightly different to a normal science conference. Let's play the opening bars of London Calling by The Clash really loud at nine o'clock in the morning. Let's set the tone. And and that became... Really works from the, the for the people who've come in from California and who are seriously uh, sleep deprived, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wake them all up. But not only that, it created... So then we kind of extended that to the plenary speakers. Why don't you tell us what the opening bars... So we've created this whole cool vibe around this tech and it's got nothing to do with our choice of music or anything like that it's the tech the tech is cool and the people who use it are ethos and goal has been like a computer to create this innovation platform for our customers they will absolutely produce the innovation um, there is no way we could potentially think of some of the amazing things they've done in the seven years since we launched the product. So in answer to your question, in a very long way, it is the coolest thing in the world when I get up and open that conference and then sit there for two and a half, three days. And, and you know, I don't understand all of the biology, but, you know, you get the sense of the gasps and the, because what we can do now in an affordable, accessible way in real time um, I gave a talk last week at a web summit in Portugal and just did a bit of background reading. If the Industrial Revolution was about industries being built by atoms, the information age was built by bytes. 
And now we're about to hit the genomic information age. And that all came about from the real-time accessible nature. So th this, this idea, this value proposition of affordable, accessible data at your fingertips, we think is transformative. And we're on the cusp of the genomic era. And, and you know, we believe, we believe our platform has the potential to really help to catalyze that revolution. As I spoke with researchers who included fans and users of Oxford Nanopore devices, they described the projects they worked on with these instruments and also what they wish for from the company for the future. Among the things I heard was an ability to work with lower sample amounts than currently possible and to deal with fewer software updates from the company. As a, as a disruptor, the rule book says, you know, release software, hardware, fast, release it regularly. But seven years in, there is a new customer base emerging, right? And they are very much focused on applied markets. The technology is good enough now in, in you know, in the features and benefits it can provide. But they, they, they cannot, they do not want to, and they cannot cope with the continual change. So there's, you know, we're now seeing this emergent new group, um, and and them and and they're really important because, you know, the first genome was mapped 20 years ago now and cost three billion and took 10 years and all of that. Um, we've not really crossed the chasm into applied markets, so that group are really important to us, and we're going to be launching a set of product lines called the Q line, Q for quality, where we don't change things as regularly because we mustn't lose sight of the innovators. They're the goose that lay the golden egg. They want regular rapid changes. So we just have to, you know, as we become, become a more mature business, there are the early adopters. They just want the newest stuff. But then there are the middle who just want to use it to do tests, to do applied market applications. So we're starting to build that, but you know, it is a work in progress. I wouldn't want to say that it's perfect and we've solved it all. We are, you know, we will work out how to do both. And, and so that's coming. Indeed, Oxford Nanopore is no longer an upstart, but it's also true that the company is not alone in the market. And there has been litigation between, for example, Pacific Biosciences, another sequencing company, and Oxford Nanopore. Researchers told me they are sad that things like litigation happen, but of course, in the business world, they just do. But some of the litigation was about how to make sequencing with Oxford Nanopore devices more accurate. And indeed, accuracy has dramatically improved over time. What has changed accuracy and does not involve litigation is an approach at Oxford Nanopore called the duplex pipeline. It's a way to sequence one DNA strand and its complement. It's a way to capture reads from both DNA strands of the same double-stranded DNA molecule. Accuracy is a continuum. So if you've got drug-resistant MRSA, you just need to know it's drug-resistant. You don't need... Um, uh, to know highly accurately, you know, what it is. But if you've got a really rare mutation in cancer, one in 10,000 or 100,000, then you need that sort of different accuracy. Now, we've always wanted to have the second strand follow the first one. It, it has many, many advantages beyond just accuracy. 
And we noted that naturally one strand will follow the other without any chemical coupling. And it was a chemical coupling that was killing us. The, the strand naturally goes through, but it's not connected in any way. And that is something that we've launched. And um, it's called duplex. This approach, for example, is useful if someone wants to look at maternal and paternal contributions, the alleles on both chromosomes. Also, just because of long reads, you can look at alleles and phasing anyway. You can see it here, and, and then you can see over there. You know, you think about it, you've got 500 mini sequences, right? And you can just say, oh, you know, channel number 256 has got my partner. You know, I'm here in channel 27, and 256 is there. So you can informatically bring it together. But it always helps if they're all together, because you can see one after the other. And we know from the time domain, because a strand goes through, the, 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 the enzyme singulates a double strand. One goes down the hole to be read. The other one drifts off into the ether, captured later goes down a different channel. But when one follows the other, the time between the two is such that we know it's, it's the partner. And then when they follow each other, we can look at them and say it's definitely the partner because you can't have, you know, CT, GT, AT. They can't match perfectly if they're not the partner. So it's, it's, it's a nice trick, and it will, you're right. It, it, it helps in many, many ways, um, and particularly for those who really want that high-level accuracy. It's so a one stick we've been beaten with continually. Oh, we'll never be as accurate. And we're about to show that it surpasses the existing tech in exactly the same way. And this is the disruptor's playbook versus the incumbent's defense. Everybody said digital photography would never be as good as Kodak Color. And the rest is history. In the Oxford Nanopore London Calling event of 2022, Clive Brown, the chief technology officer of Oxford Nanopore, talked about a bonkers idea. When I did this interview with Gordon Sangira, Clive Brown was unwell. So let me just play you a bit from the London Calling event. There was one other key point I wanted to make. Oh, yes, that's right, the toothbrush. So this is, this is where they think I'm completely bonkers in Nanopore. So what does the ideal device look like? Right? What, if you wanted to decentralize liquid biopsy, how would you do that? And actually, there's some great examples if you think about um, blood glucose. So early blood glucose, 50 years ago, you'd trot along to a clinic and you'd give 20 mils of blood. And they'd do a huge extraction and run it through a huge thing and you'd get your blood glucose measurement. And then actually Gordon worked on this, talked to Gordon about it, and then it moved on to uh, strip tests, these sort of lateral flow type strip tests with a reader. And now you can put a device on your arm with a needle in that continuously measures your glucose using tiny, tiny amounts of blood. Think about the evolution of that, it's quite remarkable. And I don't see why measuring DNA or RNA from blood should be any different. I can't see why. So. You know, an ideal device would be a toothbrush, I think, because when you add it in the mouth, you've got 50,000 white blood cells per mil. When you, when you scrape your teeth, you release about 100 mils of serum or blood. And doing that twice a day, if you sum over the amount of stuff you're measuring over one, two, three months, you're looking at uh, 10, 20 mils of blood. You're just doing it in tiny steps. And of course, 
we can select some, we can select molecules, we can filter molecules, and if we see a molecule that looks suspicious, we can sequence it again and again and again and be certain that we're seeing a pathogenic mutation. That all sounds completely bonkers, but that's where I want to take this technology over the next two, three years. And here's Gordon Sengira commenting on this toothbrush idea, and generally on the future prospects. When I talk about, when I mentioned we're on the cusp of the genomic era, um, we know very little about the, 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 gen, the source code of any living thing at all, right? And, and if you take a simple example as Clive was, your oral microbiome, it could be a phenomenal way of, you know, there's no reason why we can't have a small integrated sequencer that would fit inside a toothbrush. You know, there was, there's a real, you know, idea there. And when you clean your teeth, if you clean them well, there should be a little bit of blood. So you're basically opening up cells, you're releasing the DNA. And plus, your, mic- your microbiome is all the bugs that live in your mouth. So, for example, if you're having open heart surgery, they will swab the inside of your mouth and make sure there are no, no infections in the saliva that can infect the heart. So it, the, the, the vision is you change the healthcare paradigm from diagnosis when you don't feel well to continuously monitoring to pick up early warning signs. And and that doesn't necessarily have to be a disease. When your immune system starts to react to something, your RNA expression levels change. So it could be something very simple that you can see, just like temperature or blood pressure shifting. It's very generic, but it's very broad. And, And that doesn't just you know, you can expand that to your gut microbiome where there are trillions of organisms and, and, and the gut microbiome, you know, you're starting to see some associations. People say, you know, if you change the flora and fauna in your gut, you can change, you know, you can lose weight. You can impact things like Crohn's disease. These are all really, really, we're really in the foothills of this journey. But the future we envisage is this capability. So with the, uh, with the gut microbiome, there's no reason why a smart toilet can't just check everything. This is, this is what the world would look like. We never imagined a world where you could look up the weather in, in Singapore, you know, in the next three days while I'm gonna be there at, the, at, the, at my fingertips. That wasn't possible before the information ate it. So yeah, there's real rationale in there. And one of the most exciting ones is cancer. What will happen with cancer is that this whole, are you familiar with liquid biopsies? Yes. So the idea that signatures of cancerous free-floating DNA before you see any biopsies, you really, what you're saying there is, I'm going to pick cancers up at stage one, stage two. And so we envisage a future where you might like the glucose thing, do a monthly blood test, and it checks to see if there's any signatures there. For people in, where it goes first, people in remission, they are paranoid that, you know, they have this six monthly appointment, the day after cancer occurs, and it's got six months to take grip. So this idea, again, that pushing back, and, and, the, and these are smart systems, the, 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 the patient, 
the consumer doesn't need to be an oncologist. The data will go to a specialist and it'll come back red, amber, green. And then it'll be amber, pop in, let's take a look at you. And that's how we are going to save our healthcare systems by shifting everything and all of us taking responsibility for these tests. And the big frontier that is unmapped in diagnosis is genetics. And you can port that to environmental monitoring, to food monitoring, you know, food protection, pathogen attack. I mean, it really is quite a broad canvas. And we have ideas and brainstorms about the kind of products that we could bring to bear. And the toothbrush was a visionary, you know, embodiment of what we think will come. As we were wrapping up the conversation, we returned to the question of what historic figures might say about this technology if they came around. So Rosalind Franklin would really be able to see, like Curie, how her stuff really is is transformed. I mean, with gene editing now, there's going to be a huge transformation, both in, in human health, animal health, but also crops and, and food security, you know. There's just so many exciting things happening. The conversation then turned to access to this technology. One of the things that we're really passionate about is enabling the access of DNA, RNA information, affordable access, so low and middle income countries. So in the context of the pandemic, we sequenced over a million genomes um, in 85 countries, and a lot of those countries are public health laboratories who are new to sequencing. We, we provided them the kit that made it as simple as a PCR workflow to be able to, at home, in real time, look at what the mutations were and whether it was Omicron or other. Um, and, and that really has opened the eyes of those low and middle income countries to the power of decentralized, low-cost, affordable, accessible, real-time DNA RNA sequencing. And I think that is, is like, that alone we're very proud of. This topic also brought us to the topic of cost. Sequencing isn't free, of course, and sometimes it's quite costly. The way our system works, we actually give the devices away for free anyway. You only buy consumables. So um, the MinIron is the size of a Hershey bar and sits in the palm of your hand. So we can make them at such low cost, we can bundle them so that people don't have to pay. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's guest was Dr. Gordon Sangira, CEO of Oxford Nanopore Technologies. And here's a thank you and shout out to Zoe McDougall, who helped make this podcast happen. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, nobody paid for this podcast and nobody paid to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. And the music for this project is Winnie the Mook, Funky Energetic Intro, and Acid Trumpet by Kevin McLeod, downloaded and licensed from filmmusic.io. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>